In partnership with Paizo, the No Direction Network welcomes you to our PaizoCon Online 2023 seminar coverage. Hello, PaizoCon. Welcome to Secrets of Galarian, where we will be talking about the Lost Omen setting line and then maybe giving out a few secrets about Galarian. I am your moderator, Luis Loza. I am Pathfinder's creative director for the rules and lore team and help shepherd the Lost Omen setting, which is, I guess, why they brought me on here to, to talk about Galarian and all that stuff. And I am joined by two amazing developers uh, off here to my left on the screen. We'll start with Eleanor. Do you mind introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Eleanor Farron. I am the senior developer on the Rules and Lore team, working with Luis on the Lost Omens line. I'm John Compton. I'm a senior developer who works on the Pathfinder Adventure Paths. Um, I've been working on various parts of Lost Omens for a while now. And like I mentioned here, we want to talk a little bit about Lost Omens, the setting as a whole, and maybe what you can look forward to in the future of our Lost Omens book. So we'll take the first bit of this panel to talk about what's coming up in the Lost Omens line. I did a little bit of, of preview for some of these things in the keynote yesterday, but I think we now get a chance to talk more about these. And the more fun part is show off some of the cool art that you're going to be seeing in these upcoming books. So if we want to go to our first slide, I think we'll just talk really briefly about a book that's actually already out now, uh, which is uh, The Lost Omens Firebrands. Uh, here's the cover art featuring Shamali Mannix, who is one of the rebels that is a member of the Firebrands, very important. She helped lead the Vidrian, uh, uh, the Vidric Revolution to liberate uh, Vidrian. And uh, it's been a big event in our, our history here in the last couple of years. And that book is all about revolutionaries and braggarts. Uh, as we, you know, if you want to go and help people fight against tyranny, you can be a firebrand and do that. If you want to just look good and go adventuring and get a cool reputation and find yourself encountering fun stuff and, and getting treasures, you can also be a firebrand for that reason. And that book gives you all the details on that. It talks about the relationships between the different factions within the firebrands. It talks about how to join up. It talks about different rules options you gain as a member. You know, you have different uh, clandestine uh, equipment. Uh, you have archetype feats for things like the dandy and the pirate uh, and, uh, of course, the vigilante and lots of just fun little spy-related and adventuring fun-related uh, options available to you there. That book's actually been out for a month now, so if you are interested in checking out the Firebrands or bringing a taste of spy and intrigue flavor to your games, whether or not it's through the Firebrands, you can go check that book out now. It's available at paizo.com. It's available at your favorite local gaming store. It's a fun time. I recommend checking out. Uh, there's a lot of cool material there, and it's great. I like the book. But I think now we want to look forward to the future. Coming out next month is a book that I think John knows pretty well. Uh, the, this is a book all about uh, a location in our, our setting called High Helm, which is the, the kind of cultural center for dwarves. And John, uh, because you're working on the Adventure Path line, you also happen to be working on the Sky King's Tomb Adventure Path, which is coming out very soon. And do you mind telling us a bit about that uh, and the connections between the AP and High Helm and what people can expect uh, from the setting as well? Absolutely, yeah. So 
if Firebrands is all about getting out there and being your chaotic self, uh, Highhelm really digs down into the tradition. We've long known the dwarves have this like traditional streak and have millennia of history, um, but it's been really easy for anyone really, uh, whether it's a developer or whether it's a reader, to look at the Five Kings Mountains region and say, oh my gosh, they're dwarves, they're being slow, they're being traditionalist, they're being boring, whatever. Highhelm really revitalizes a lot of that and revisits a lot of that. Looking into what makes dwarves tick, what makes Highhelm the de facto cultural nexus of this whole place work. Um, what's its history, what, what's the culture like, and how also are non-dwarves involved? That's a really important part of, of us telling these stories. Um, so uh, you're looking at like, you know, some of their mining, some uh, we're going to be eventually looking at one of their pictures of High King Targic, who is a major legendary figure in their past. Basically the guy who, uh, when they were working their way to the surface and all the dwarven clans were kind of breaking apart. He was really a, a unifier who got them back on their feet and moving back upward toward the surface where they built all the sky citadels and the dwarven surface culture we know today. So people look back at him with all sorts of reverence, but you know, it's been like 10,000, 9,000 years, you know, a lot of details slipped through the cracks. And that's a little bit of where Sky King's tomb, our upcoming adventure path really delves into, uh, is some of that quest for sky, high king target storyline. And what are some of the secrets that lie behind the legends that you as the PCs are going to be able to find out? Um, but High Helm, focusing on the uh, setting part itself for the moment, is a big, big place. So when we look to our next slide, we get a great side view of High Helm um, because it's broken up into four major sections. Um, King's Crown, King's Heart, uh, forgetting the, uh, the next one, and then the depths. Um, uh, Stone uh, Breach Stone is Breach, uh, the bottom layer. Yeah, um, and so basically, uh, this is a really cool way for us to have organized High Helm into different uh, neighborhoods and districts, um, but also a cool way of just creating a different cityscape. We're really used to cities, even fantasy cities, being the sorts of things where it's like spread out, it's horizontal, but there's a really cool verticality and uh, interconnectedness to all of High Helm that even when you're in one of these different layers, which has its own unique character, um, you're still part of the greater whole. Um, and that's really important because dwarves, especially High Helm, is all about community. There's a huge sense of art, cultural respect and love, um, and industriousness where it's just sort of like, when you think about like elves, they're like, okay, long lives, sure, but we're going to sit outside, we're going to enjoy the seasons, we're going to uh, create art and whatnot. Humans, let's go out and do things. Dwarves, you know, when you're underground, there aren't so many seasons, uh, you're still long-lived. For dwarves, there's always this idea of engagement that you still need, and part of that is through crafting, part of that is through community engagement, and all of that really creates all these really awesome traditions that are explored in the depths of this High Helm book. So you're going to be able to look at not only art, but also a whole bunch of really cool text entries that are showing off just how colorful, flavorful, and exciting uh, high Helm can be, whether you're dwarf or not dwarf. What we're seeing right now is a bunch of symbols that are associated with the different clans uh, of High Helm. Basically, when uh, King, High King Targic, or who would eventually become High King Targic, um, was reuniting dwarven groups, they were all subterranean. They were scattered out to, you know, gather resources where they could. Actually uniting so many people was really hard, and one of the ways that he was able to make that work was by more creating like a uh, a federation of clans where they all kept their individual identities to this day. 
And so there's this strong clan tradition that's kind of your support network, um, but is not permanently binding. So if you want to jump between different clans, um, there are mechanisms for that. But this is kind of one of those big cultural overarching uh, notions that pervades all throughout High Helm. Um, so each one of these clans, these major clans, has its own kind of traditional industry. Um, but as is important with any of our uh, world building, especially when it comes to things like clan, caste, whatever, um, these are things where it informs uh, what a you know, dwarven kid is going to learn growing up, but it doesn't necessarily define. It doesn't set it in stone, uh, so to speak. So there's still a lot of <laughs> flexibility in your own storytelling and in your own um, uh, character creation. Also, hey, when we think about dwarves, we oftentimes think of we kind of default to the bearded male patriarch style view, but uh, High Helm has been a really great opportunity to explore all sorts of different inhabitants of High Helm of any gender, any appearance, uh, and also, of course, as you'll see along the bottom in particular, of some non-dwarves as well, because High Helm in particular over the past couple of decades has really reached out to a bunch of its neighbors, especially with the return of Tarbifon, to basically like, hey, let's, let's start really... Uh, Figuring out some uh, shared defense strategies, some uh, renewed trade, things like that. And that's one of the other great hooks that's going to be drawing in a whole bunch of people into High Helm, including one of the things that might be drawing you, as a player, into the start of the Sky King's Tomb Adventure Path. Let's yeah. see, what else we got going on? Uh, I, uh, think I think that's, that's the last of our Dwarven slides, yeah. But I did have a few questions for you. John, so this High Helm uh, is kind of like our other fantasy cities, meant to be the hub for campaigns and everything. How much involvement will High Helm have with the AP? There's been APs where it's your home base, but you kind of just come and go as you need to for adventures. Is there going to be a lot of opportunities to explore High Helm in Sky King's Tomb? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Sky King's Tomb is a three-part adventure path. Um, and the first adventure in that, or the first volume, uh, takes place almost entirely inside of High Helm. And High Helm is going to be a place that you return to a couple of times over the course of the rest of the adventure path. But the adventure path's general arc is one where over time you are delving deeper and farther away from the familiar High Helm uh, base that you're familiar with as you explore deeper, darker, and more dangerous uh, secrets that lie in the Darklands. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think one thing we want to make it clear is although High Helm is a cultural center for dwarves, it doesn't mean you have to be a dwarf to live there or to play in the Sky King's Tomb AP. There's a lot of opportunities for other ancestries to, to hang out in there. Uh, Eleanor, um, I don't know how much you want to talk about these, but I know that you're a big fan of one of the uh, stock uh, livestock that's being grown within High Helm, Grindle Grubs. Uh, do you want to like, tease people a little bit about what these guys are? Uh, I mean... The dwarves typically have lived underground, which is mm -hmm. not your best agriculture locale for cows, uh, pigs. Well, you could, you can do it with pigs, especially, but it's not ideal. Um, and of course, before the quest for the sky, they didn't have any of that. They didn't even know what a cow was. So the question, of course, becomes, well, what do they eat? Um, in this case, one of the introduced creatures is a grindle grub, which is a very large grub that has been domesticated to just be a soft and tender uh, food item <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> you know, the dwarves are happy to turn into steaks. And if you're adventurous, you might also turn into a steak. Um, 
but uh, I personally find them adorable. So, uh, you know, it's a little sad to see them turned into yeah. lunch. I guess you could say the same for a chicken or a, or a lamb or whatever. There's hey, a, you know, Eleanor, Brindle from Ancestry One. <laughs> you know, I, I did find a restaurant named something like Grindle Grub, and I sent it to Louise, even. Um, there's a great piece in there of a Grindle Grub rancher who is so happy. She's, like, hugging it the way you would hug a, like a cat or a dog. And this thing is enormous. It's, like, you know, this big or so. Uh, and the whole thing that came about is uh, Leanne Marcial was one of the writers on here, and she was writing about the the living in life in high home and stuff. And one thing she realized, oh, you can't really have a sewer system inside an underground mountain the same way. How do you take care of those needs? Maybe we have these things that feed on that. And wouldn't you know it, if you need to lock yourself into the mountain to defend people and, and whatnot, you then have a food source for a while in case things go for a long time. And it's maybe not the, the most fun for someone who really finds them cute, like Eleanor or that dwarf uh, rancher. But, uh, you know, they're very functional. There's a lot to that there's a lot of considerations that came in with it which i think was uh, really fun stuff uh in high helm um that book comes out next month like i mentioned uh go ahead and check that out there's going to be a lot of other rules options in there uh, a lot of dwarf options of course uh you're going to have some ancestry feats and a heritage uh, new animal companions a lot of fun stuff in there so feel free to check that out a lot of those options are also not strictly uh dwarf only uh, options so if you want some new magic items a new spell um, if you want to buy Grindle Grub steaks to eat, you can buy those. Whom, whomever you are, you don't have to be a dwarf to, to consume those. Uh, so, yeah, come June, you'll, you'll uh, get a chance to visit High Helm and then uh, also get a chance to look into uh, you know, finding the Sky Kings tomb, I think, at the same time. And I think John can talk about that more in the next panel on our Pathfinder adventures. But I think moving on, after High Helm, We'll be looking uh, at our next slide, looking at the cover of two books that are coming out in 2024, which are the Tiansha Character Guide and the Tiansha World Guide. That one on the left with every, that, that whole procession on the bridge is a cover to our Character Guide and the Boat Race is our World Guide cover. Eleanor, what can you tell us about what are going to be, I know, some pretty amazing books uh, coming out, hopefully, uh, just not soon enough, I guess, is what it comes down to for me. <laughs> yeah, coming out eventually, fingers yes. crossed. Um, yeah, so we we wanted to showcase uh, really cultural things from from cultures. I say we as speaking as somebody from the Asian American community. We wanted to really showcase a love letter to these cultures that we all share. Um, and share them with the world of Galarian. Um, and so on the left, we have the cover for the character guide, which is a standard yokai parade, which I think people familiar with Japanese culture may recognize. People have seen anime. But also, a lot. if you look closely, a lot of the people on the cover are playable ancestries that you can be in Pathfinder. You can see the Kitsune, the Tengu up front and center, the Tanuki, which will be introduced in that book. Um, and even looking in the back, you know, that pale woman, you could make a ghost or she might be a Samsaran, which will also be being introduced in the book. But Oni character could easily be a Tifling. You got the long-eared fox in the back, which might be ghost kitsune or some other combination of ancestry and heritage. And so just demonstrating this fantastic environment that 
is coming straight out of folklore, that's still a part of this setting we've created that you can interact with and even be a part of. And uh, then to sort of contrast it on the right side, we've got a boating festival in one of our um, countries where, you know, it's just people having fun, but even looking closely, you can see fantasy ancestries mixed in with this, the normal looking humans. You can see some kobolds on one of the boats, uh, uh, Nagaji sitting in the center of them, and kind of a fishy Lokatha um, beating on the drum to keep time and keep up beat. Um, just to show sort of the flip side of you know, this may be a fantastic locale, but it's still got the culture and the fun that springs from our real world and that sort of magic and and just excitement that comes from these real world cultures. I mean, no myth or, or you know, spell casting or magic required. Yeah. And uh, I think our next few slides get a chance to look at just some of the people you'll meet in Tiansha or get to play as even. Uh, if, if you're interested, uh, who can you tell us about uh, some of the people of Tian Sha? Not necessarily this person, but like, you know, what can we yeah, expect we, we, from the populace of Tian Sha? We definitely wanted to show off. I mean, it's an entire continent of people based on an entire continent of people with, you know, tens of countries, hundreds of cultures, thousands of years of history. We didn't have enough room in the book to include certainly all of the people, all of the cultures, all of the outfits, uh, all of the folklore and tropes that we could have crammed in there. Uh, we just had to, you know, give it our best go and try and make it a start. Um, and especially a lot of some of the most interesting uh, artifacts and, and cultural, like, visual mediums in that place aren't very explored. Uh, to the point where when they've shown up in our previous books, people don't recognize them as being from Asia. Um, I know that when the hobgoblins of Kaoling, which have shown up before, they are actually mm -hmm. based on Bronze Era Shang China. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they see them, they just uh, sort of misidentify them as Mayan or Incan, something from South America. Um, and so this is really a chance for us to showcase all of these people and cultures that come from Asia uh, in our book, um, just to to really demonstrate how rich and and beautiful this this continent is, without even getting into things that we have created and made up. <laughs> uh, there's a slide on the screen now, which uh, I I have had the word ducks written in all caps in my notes for at least three or four years now. Um, because if you if you look in certain rural areas, uh, the farmers use herds of ducks as pest control, and so you can see these massive herds of ducks just walking through the street in these pictures. It's just you know people sitting in traffic is like, well, there's a million ducks in the way now. I'll just have to sit here and wait. Um, and so I wanted to I wanted to bring in some of that that feeling here is you've got this very. Um, kind of mundane looking village being visited by these colorful people who brought their ducks with them. Uh, <laughs> duck and, ancestry uh, incoming. We... Well, you oh know, maybe, gosh. you never uh, know. <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> uh, what's going on? This is one of my 
I intentionally picked this because I need you to talk about this. Uh, there's <laughs> something really exciting going on here. Uh, okay, we're trying so to show off scenes is, of what life is like in Tianxia with this. This is taking place in Goka, which may it rivals Absalom for the largest city in the world. It may beat out Absalom for the largest city in the world. And um, those who are familiar with Goka know that the Golden League, which is this network of criminals, has a really huge presence there. Uh, to the point where some of them have even made their way onto the ruling council. And they've actually started beating out some of the local gangs, which were known as alley bashers. Uh, these, these sort of smaller gangs were made up of these tattooed thugs, basically. Um, but they are being driven out of the business of crime and almost having to go legit. And so what you're seeing here is that these alley bashers no one's sure how, but they made these little clockwork and magical machines where you can play as one of these two alley bashers and basically fight each other in this magical game. Uh, yes, it is Mortal Kombat in, uh, in Galarian. And so these students who are stressed out from finals and hiding from disapproving parents have all mobbed into this sort of shady arcade and are, and are playing... <laughs> Um, alley bashers with one another and uh, cheering each other on. So there you go. There you go, Luis. Now the secret is out. Now I know. One, another secret. But uh, Tiansha is also a place. That, I mean, there's a lot of people living here, but it's also a place with its own dangers. Uh, what are we looking at here uh, in this scene? Uh, so this is Chuyokai Forest. It is in the nation of Chuye. Um, which was overtaken by Oni, but um, frankly, it had some problems beforehand. In this particular case, there are no Oni here because they are too scared to go into this forest. Uh, <laughs> Can't imagine why. Uh, yeah. So Fumeyoshi, who is a god of envy and undeath, uh, the Oni worship him kind of, sort of. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't get kind of mad at them sometimes because he is the god of envy um and so at some point he basically murdered everything in this forest and that yokai you see is a grave yokai which is an undead yokai that rose up after it was slaughtered by a god and they still lurk around there just sort of weeping horribly and guarding the graves in this place and anything that comes in here uh doesn't fare well to the point where rebels against the Oni of Chuye uh, kind of hide in the outskirts of this forest, trying not to be eaten, but they know the Oni are not going to come in here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so our next look here is that we, we've, we've announced three playable ancestries, Samsarans, Tanuki, and Waiyangs. Uh, what can you tell us about Samsarans a little bit here? Oh, um, so Samsarans are actually exciting because we get to delve into their history a little more. Uh, before, we just said that they reincarnated over and over as just sort of like, well, other people reincarnate sometimes, depending what makes the Samsarans so particularly different. Um, and in this case, they actually have their origins in a group of people who found this mystical spring and uh, drank from it. And now they just reincarnate over and over until they feel they have achieved enlightenment. And 
the interesting side effect of this spring is that they, if you cut a samsarin open, they bleed water, not blood. Mm-hmm. So they've got these very interesting mystical connection to water um, and to reincarnation, of course. And, and you can see from the costumes that um, they're very based in their mountainous home region, um, which is sort of very cold and inhospitable, but they that's their homeland that's where they're connected to and uh they don't they have an easier time there than probably most humans would yeah and i, I, really I got a chance the to idea develop samsar and bleeding water and just thinking about not only that but rebirth in terms of how cool of a murder mystery that would be yeah <laughs> yeah and and uh i mean when they uh die or achieve enlightenment uh, I, I think it's more when they achieve enlightenment, they literally turn back into water and just sort of whoosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I got a chance to develop some of the, the ancestry and the feats and stuff. And there's a lot of like tapping into previous life for old knowledge. And of course, eventually getting a chance to overcome death and being like, this is not my time to go. I, I know death pretty well. And I can, I can set that aside for a bit and keep going, which is pretty fun. Uh, and I think our next slide was already up there where we get a chance to talk about Tanuki and their big bellies. What can you tell us about Tanuki, Eleanor? They are giant losers. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is specifically how they were written. That is how they were pitched to me by the person who wrote them, James Case. Um, and and all of their heritage are, in fact, based on um, quote-unquote Tanuki virtues, which uh, just just to get I, I want to pull up a quote here just to, to get uh, Tanuki courage, for example, states that you, ha- you display courage as only a Tanuki can, and you, your speed is a lot faster so that you can run away really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, they, I mean, they, they have the same shape-shifting capabilities as Kitsune, sort of. They're more known for turning into inanimate objects, uh, traditionally a tea kettle, but uh, they're just kind of losers. Uh, they don't have the same mystique as... Uh, I, I see people asking the inevitable question in chat. It's their big bellies. <laughs> they use their big bellies for uh, transformation powers and other sort of mystical things. And you can see that one Tanuki is drumming on his belly. Uh, they're fun guys uh i think people will have a lot of fun with the different heritages and realize like just i mean i think loser is right but there's like an adorable endearingness to this loser aspect of um and we have one other ancestry we want to show off a bit of art and talk a bit about our yangs uh what can you tell us about yangs and shadows and stuff eleanor uh the yangs they they had like very a uh, cute intro. They are originally natives from the Shadow Plane, and actually, when Earthfall happened, they were just like, "Hey, look at the look at that shadowy place down there. It's super dark. Let's go check it out, guys." And then, of course, eventually the ashes clear, and they're just like, "Hey, what the heck? This sucks now." But uh, they they stuck around, <laughs> and <laughs> they have a strong connection to shadows, and um. Actually, I think you may have worked on the mechanics of these with James. Yes, I did. Um, yeah, do you, so, is there anything like specifically interesting in there you want to share? Yeah, um, I think the term Yang comes from a specific word referring to a type of Indonesian shadow puppet. 
I remember correctly. Uh, and yeah. the that whole idea kind of inspired the, the conceit that like, well, their heritages are based on the stories that they share. Uh, so you have, um, you know, hunters and fishers and farmers and stuff that are important to these kinds of stories. And that's where the heritage is draw from. So if you're, uh, if you're taking the hunter um, heritage, I forgot the name off the top of my head, but there, there's one that, you know, tied to hunters. It's all about uh, helping you in combat and you use the power of shadows to aid you in combat uh, to basically uh, line up shots uh, well. And, and, and um, if you do things just right, your shadow goes and binds that the creature that you're hunting in place and makes it harder for them to escape, uh, which is a kind of thing that would, uh, in theory, show up in Yang stories and stuff. So the, the heritages are all based on, on the power uh, of performance and shadows and stuff. And then they can do other cool things like um, manipulate uh, ally shadows and, and, and enemy shadows and stuff to, to move around the battlefield and stuff like that, which is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, just giving a chance to really expand on what we had on Yang's and Sepsar and some first edition and you know, the, the way ancestries work in 2E means we get to give them a lot of flavor and a lot of cool, interesting ideas and forms of mechanics. Um, but those are just three of the new ancestries. I think we have a total of six. Is that right, Eleanor? We do, and I see people prying at us for the other three. So I'll just say well, all three of them are brand new. You will not yes. be able to guess them, most likely, because they are <laughs> new to the setting. Yeah, uh, they're pretty exciting. Um, and uh, if you aren't playing one of these new ancestors, you might be playing, you know, something like a Kitsuna, Tengu, or a human, uh, and have your chance to also be a typical adventurer. And with adventuring also comes uh, a look at religion. And if we go to our next slide, we get to talk about some of the gods that are showing up in Tiansha. Uh, these first few gods are ones that we've already seen before. Who are we looking at here, Eleanor? We already knew the know the new ancestry is ducks. Yeah, I blew that one. Um, so you, <laughs> if you have picked up gods and magic, you will probably recognize these two. The one on the left is Shizuru, the Empress of Heaven, um, and the one on the right is Skio, uh, the Prince of the Moon. Um, Who jumped for us the first time around uh, back in yeah, the day? Uh, so we wanted to show off Shizuru in her dragon form because she is indeed a dragon. Um, and that is why the dragons in Tiansha all pay homage to her to a certain extent. Uh, they, they have their own affairs, certainly, but if Shizuru comes knocking, it's just sort of like, uh, uh, boss is in, uh, we better shape up. Uh, <laughs> and and um, I mean, we've gone into a lot of words on their relationship to one another and how that interacts with just the cycles of the sun and the moon and the eclipse in Tiansha. Um, this book focuses a little more on their separate identities and what they mean to the people who worship them, just not as the not as the power couple of of day and night, but um, how they how they view them on their own merits, especially because Shizuru holds such an important role in the celestial bureaucracy that mm-hmm. pretty much most of the main continent and um, Minkai and as well um, pay homage to. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I see some people that are surprised to find out that Shizuru is a dragon. She is, yes. Uh, <laughs> she. <laughs> She is often depicted in human form, um, but but she is indeed a dragon. Uh, yeah, looking back has, at the, yeah, um, she does have a human form, and that is that is how she is the goddess of samurai. 
uh, she, her human form has the, the katana and the layered armor. Uh, yeah, if you go back to yes, um, Angel. the Dragon Empire's Gazetteer, there's, there are a couple of the deities in the back that are specifically noted as having uh, dragon forms. Yeah. So it's not yeah, just Shizu. Um, uh, that book. I mean, it could, it, could all, it could be all of them, but most notably, Shizuru is a dragon. Her half-brother, General Susumu, is a dragon. And the disaster god, Lady Nyanbo, is a dragon. <laughs> uh, General Susumu is someone that uh, is pretty relevant to our next slide, actually. Uh, and <laughs> who, who, is, who is he hanging out with uh, here on this slide? As soon as the slide. Okay, so General Susumu, that is on the right. Um, he is a god of glory and battle. And uh, if you know a lot about historical samurai, he is going to match what historical samurai were actually like and less what they looked like when they wrote their own plays. But uh, <laughs> I guess... Um, that is his human form. As you can see, he is not a dragon trying to ride a horse, which I would feel extremely <laughs> bad for his winged horse if that were the case. Um, and to the left, we have people, uh, I think, identifying the inspiration for this god, but that is Daikitsu, patron of Kitsune, goddess of agriculture and the arts. Um, and it's believed that all of the Kitsune depended, uh, descended from her servants who asked for her blessing to be able to change their shapes like um, Daikutsu did. And uh, yeah, um, I know a lot of people might expect the goddess patron of Kitsune to be a Kitsune, but in her particular case, uh, she's not really locked into any one form or any one appearance or any one gender even. Um, she still goes by, you know, Lady of Foxes, but she does not particularly care how she chooses to appear one day or another. And um, a lot of people depict her as human as opposed to necessarily a fox. But as you can see, the fox servants around her still show how important they are to her faith and to her personally. Um, I see a question in chat. Kitsune are technically all descendants of divine servants. Yeah, that's that is the story most of them believed, and um, in fact, one of the heritages reflects that. As even if you don't want to play a divine character like a cleric, you can still be descended and and have been trained as a messenger of the gods because of your connection to Daikitsu. Mm -hmm. yeah. And. Um... We have a lot of new gods that we won't have time to talk about here, but some that if you, you know, John mentioned the Dragon Empire's Gazetteer from one a lot of them are featured there, but some will be uh, being shown off for the first time in, in Tianxia World Guide. And you better hope that they're, uh, you have their favor because you also have to deal with some of the monsters of Tianxia. Our, our final slide is showing off just a few of these uh, amazing little creatures. Uh, can, what can you tell us about these monsters, Eleanor? Oh gosh, uh, one of the, okay. So the one on the left, that is a Tishio. Uh Calling it a monster is, I guess, technically accurate, but it's actually a celestial that was kicked out. It's not quite appropriate to call it a fallen celestial because it wasn't kicked out of heaven for doing anything necessarily bad. It was kicked out more for being like an over exuberant puppy. Uh, you know, it just got 
so excited it wrecked the place, so excited that it couldn't help but eat the celestial treasures. And and so they just sort of got tossed out. It's like, okay, puppy goes in the yard. Now you don't get to be on the couch anymore. But uh, they still, as agents of heaven, as celestials, they are still considered signs of good fortune, things that castigate evil beings. Um, but they still do have an appetite for gold and treasure. So your adventurers may find themselves trying to kill a literal agent of heaven a benign, malevolent being because it is eating all of their treasure. <laughs> and if they don't stop it, they're not going to get any money to recoup their expenses. Um, so this this particular Pichio is, is the female one. Uh, it doesn't have a mane. Uh, you'll see one that is more golden in the books that does have a mane. That's the male one. Uh, the number of horns varies on based on depiction, but in our particular case, we chose both of them to have one horn, uh, just to make it uh, more consistently easy to identify. In in some versions, the female has two horns and the male has one. Um, so moving away from those good boys is is this really not good thing? <laughs> um, it is based on a Chinese creature known as a Qianglu, um, but it. It is known as the Great Flood, and when it crawls up out of the ocean, uh, it basically comes across the first inhabitant things it sees, and then those nine heads discuss on whether it should be destroyed. And if they decide, yes, they raise it into the ground. And if they decide no, they move on to the next thing and have a spirited debate over there. And all the heads have different personalities, and some of them even try to tell jokes to the people they're slaughtering to make it easier. <laughs> um, <laughs> because they're just that, that kind of thing. Um, this is definitely a monster that it was, when it was pitched to us, I, I, my reaction to seeing the picture, which is this art on the screen, is, is pretty close to what the original creature looks like. And it's just like, hey, China, what the heck? What the heck is this thing? And so, of course, we had to include it. Um, <laughs> I see people calling it the worst Zoom call. It's, yeah, um, maybe a little. <laughs> um, uh, the last creature, I think uh, some people might recognize because it has been catching on in popular culture or in certain circles for some reason. Um, it is young now. It is Korean. Um, they are fallen celestials that actually did bad things, unlike the Pichio. And um, <laughs> James, God. Um, they eat rich people. Um, technically, they eat rich people that are misusing their wealth. Um, how many rich people that includes may be up to the interpretation of individuals. Um, but uh, yes, they, they eat rich people. And if they eat enough rich people, they get to go back to heaven. Um, so, for obvious reasons, very powerful people who might hire adventurers don't like them. Uh, but, you know, maybe, um, maybe you sympathize with their cause a little more. Uh, it just depends. Um, um, but they, they have been popping up more for, um, you know, reasons. Uh, you may see them in other pieces of media as well. Um, but uh, th this is our particular depiction of one. Um, it's wearing mm -hmm. a mask. We're not quite sure what's under that mask, but they do claim to be dragons. So um, there they are. There they are. 
Well, I think that's all we have on Tian Chat at the moment. I think we'll try to bring up more in the months ahead, especially at Gen Con. But uh, for now, we'll just say expect Lost Domains Tian Chat World Guide and Character Guide in 2024. And uh, we have these last couple minutes here to try to cram in as many questions from uh, fans uh, as we can about Galarian and, and secrets therein. Uh, we grabbed a bunch of questions in advance too, but there's been questions coming in through the chat. So I'm just going to start throwing them out. Uh, this first one for John, I think. Uh, we're now entering the age of Orc with our new Orc license. Any chance of visiting Belkson in the near future? I think there's entirely that possibility. I mean, one, one of the things that we're seeing in books like High Helm is how, how fun it can be to really dive deep into not just a particular place, but also a particular ancestry's uh, story. And orcs have certainly received a whole bunch of revisiting, revision, um, kind of reframing in the course of Pathfinder's second edition and the Lost Omens setting. So I think they're totally right for us to revisit and, and start telling some really cool stories with. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I'm going to have this one uh, feel it to Eleanor. Uh, will Tiansha, the Tiansha books have Eastern-inspired, Asian-inspired archetypes uh, from the, the new continent? Of course. Um, we're going to have uh, inspired archetypes, inspired feats, um, even inspired heritages. Um, one that I might preview is, they've come up before but very obscurely, are a type of goblin known as Dokebi. Um, which are Korean goblins that are very strongly tied in with magic, especially illusions. Uh, they can also do fire, though, because they're goblins. Uh, of course they are. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the, um, they're very prominent in Huangkat, Um So you can play one of those now, and you'll get to see what they're all about when you pick up... Um, that book. I can see other questions in chat, you know, will there be info on the Elves of Jinnin? Yes, there will. Um, the Lost Omens World Guide is going to go through all the nations, and there are a lot of them. Uh, they will not be as in-depth as uh, necessarily Impossible Lands or the Mongi Expanse, because there are a lot of them. There are over 20 of them by my count, um, but we are going to do our best to cram all of that information in there and hopefully we succeed <laughs> yeah that's part of the reason why we had to do two books is just i don't think we could fit all those rules options and, and ancestries and stuff plus all the world material in just one book which we, has been fun had and it's still horrendously tight <laughs> and there have still been <laughs> really horrible cuts we had to do uh, mm -hmm. Uh, here's a question I'm going to answer. Um, uh, where on Galarian might we see Sky Islands, you know, floating islands or something, make an appearance in the future? Uh, and I can say safely, because it's already shipping to people in a few weeks, uh, there are for sure floating islands in an area called the Dragonbound Archipelago in southern western Arcadia, which will be showing up very briefly uh, in Stolen Fate uh, volume three. If you want to check that out, you can learn just a little bit about that. Uh, there's definitely a spot now for floating islands if you're into all of that uh, in Arcadia. But you know, when we get a chance to look at Arcadia, you might get more details than you would in that adventure. Uh, I sure John. do see a lot of questions in chat about when Lost Omens Arcadia is. <laughs> Sometime, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> um, 
I keep saying when they let me, what I, what I, what I used to say is, Hey, when they'll let me do Arcadia, but now I'm the guy that lets things happen. So, uh, more of when they don't have enough energy to stop me. (laughs) Um, John, I know you were wanting to field this question. I, I can't imagine why, but it's, uh, what are the most common curse words in Galarian specifically? Is there an equivalent of the F word? Uh, ubiquitous curse that could be used both as a noun and as a verb and as an adjective. Uh, any thoughts on on what people are cursing, saying around Galarian? Um, I think one of the things that we run into the most is, at least in our existing canon, is we run into blasphemous utterances a fair amount. Yeah. If you look at the like Dave Gross Pathfinder Tales novels, uh, you get a certain number of like you know Desna laughs, Desna cries sorts of uh, remarks. But uh, you can really dig into any number of other things like you know, Urgathoa's, you know, fleshless half, or you, you know, by by the unarmored bits of Gorum, um, things like that. Uh, so I, I think that that's where you're going to run into the most of it. Uh, the other consideration is that you know swear words tend to be linguistically tied, and so given the sheer number of languages that we have, not only are there going to be different swear words that are occurring all over. Avistan alone, uh, to say nothing of our other continents, but I think it might also be really cool for us from a canonical perspective to think about some of the languages that have heavier amounts of prejudice in them and see about carrying over a few of those. So, for example, the idea that there are a couple of words in Abyssal that are just like common parlance now because of nobody swears like like a demon. Um, I think that would be really cool for us to start incorporating and, and yeah. It, it transgresses linguistic lines. Cool. So that's, that's where I approach things. Eleanor, do you remember the word smizzo? <laughs> I do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want me to elaborate? <laughs> uh, sure, go for it. Okay, so, so we used to, to joke about how we wanted more encounters in the Dark Lands that uh, were not violent. And how even though there are people down there that are generally considered evil and hostile, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will attack you and murder you on sight. Um, and one of the ideas we came up with was a... Uh, Luis came up with the idea of an encounter where a group of brown teenagers who are probably smoking weed off in a tunnel call you a smizzo and just start laughing hysterically. <laughs> and if, if you try to get any clarification from them, they just call you a smizzo again. So uh, <laughs> here, that's, that's from us for you. If you, if you yes. want some random swear words from the Underdark um, that you're not 100% uh, what they mean, and if you ask, you will get laughed at. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you have to ask, you're definitely a smizzo, so there you go. <laughs> God, what a bunch of smizzos uh, for even asking the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, here's the question, uh, back to Tiansha a little bit. Um, are we going to have any SMR Nephilim based on Chinese celestials? I think we have for sure a Nephilim lineage, which might be showing up we in the sure Tiansha material right you want to tease that or do we just want to say we sure do well i'm not sure how to tease it without just saying what it is i feel like people Mm. can guess Uh... okay that's that's enough of a tease yes there will be some nephilim uh content in in, uh the tian material um 
There was a question that. Uh, oh, no, here now we go they're calling for, me for not telling. <laughs> sure. Uh, try to. Well, uh, maybe one or two more questions. Uh, this one was Dave Gross's Tales novels might be the only example I'm aware of a Pathfinder fiction and a plot being told from a time that isn't chronologically present. There's specific reason why our adventures and other works aren't set in the past. John Compton. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's certainly some reasons for that. The, the biggest reason is that when you set something in the past, it can be harder to incorporate the consequences of your actions. It, mm -hmm. it can feel as though you are pre-programmed to fulfill what is already the canonical ending. Um, so, for example, if we were to, I don't know, do an adventure where it's like, hey, you're all going to be uh, accompanying Iomade along with her 11 acts and, you know, being part of this cool Shining Crusade stuff. And like on act three, you get Iomade killed. Well, uh, what do? Um, so that's one of the big stumbling blocks. Um, personally, I tend to find that there's nonetheless really interesting ground for covering in, in showing past portrayals of things, whether that's in novelizations or in adventures. Um, whether there's an, a known outcome or not. Because um, playing in part of like a, a known sequence of events can be really fun, really exciting. Like we want to kind of live through that, that sort of story, um, even if we know largely how it's supposed to turn out. Um, but if it turns out a different way, you know, you can always incorporate that into your, your own version of the setting. Um, and the other thing that is always possible is for adventures set in the past that aren't tied into canonical endings. So if we are telling some story about, you know, uh, Bravoy a thousand years ago uh, in kind of one of the big gaps in, in Brevik history, then that's fine. Like, it's not going to necessarily change how Bravoy in the current era works, but we can nonetheless explore really cool uh, setting ideas and, and adventure stories that wouldn't otherwise be possible. Sure. Uh, I think I'm going to field one last question, then we'll call it here. Uh, this is going to be a real quick one. Someone asks, how many, there's a rabbit from the Grand Bazaar book, is her story true? Uh, if you look in uh, Grand Bazaar, there's the shop with the, the different familiars. I forgot the shop's name off the top of my head. But one of the random plot hooks is there's this rabbit who showed up who claims to have been arid and familiar and is just waiting for him to come back. Where is he? I miss my, 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 my buddy that I used to hang out with. And the question is, is that true? And I'm just going to say, yeah, that was that was Aridin's familiar. Uh, good luck explaining what that all means afterwards. Myself, you know, a year from now when I had to uh, deal with that. But yes, how many was was Aridin's familiar? And I think that's where we're going to end it. I'm going to give everyone a quick chance to talk about if they like uh, where you can find them online or any other panels they're doing. Uh, I'm Luis Loza. You can go to luisloza.com. Uh, to find all of my stuff, I'll be on a panel tomorrow, the uh, Into the Darklands panel, talk about uh, more High Helm and Sky King's Tomb stuff. Eleanor, how about you? I do not wish to be perceived online, and you do not wish to perceive me online. So I will just say goodbye, and I will also be on that panel with Into the Darklands, and don't be a smizzo. <laughs> John? Uh, I'm John Compton. I can be found on Twitter occasionally at Archeotog, um in the bottom third that you can see. Um, and I hang out also on the Pathfinder and Starfinder uh, fan discords and occasionally on the Paizo.com message boards as well. I'll be on the next panel about Sky King's Tomb, so you can catch me there. Yes. And uh, we want to say thank you everyone for your questions, for coming by to PaizoCon, and we hope you have a great day.
Thank you for joining us for this installment of the PaizoCon Online 2023 Seminar Coverage, brought to you by Paizo and the No Direction Network. For more great gaming podcasts, visit nodirectionpodcast.com.